today we're going to take a look in our series at the compelling nature of the Word of God. Uh, this is a great series that we're going to that I'm through. I'm very excited about it. Um, last week uh, we talked about God's compelling love. This week naturally flows to talk about His Word. And this word compels means to hold together, to hold fast, to constrain. And, you know, really it means for us, what animates you? What motivates you? Where do you get the drive and the zest for living? And you need to be asking these questions every day of your life, really. Um, an unexamined life is not worth living. And there's only a few things that can actually motivate a human being. And I'm going to list them for you. One would be duty. Have you been watching The Crown? They talk a lot about duty over there in England around the monarchy. Another one would be fear. Most people I find being a pastor live their life out of fear. Another thing that people can live by is greed, zest for money, for wealth. Another motivating factor is power, to have control and power over the other people. Another motivating factor is sex. I won't elaborate anymore. You can create your own images. And then ego. People are just driven by their own pride, their own self-righteousness, their own ego. But hopefully, the mature person, the wise person, is motivated, compelled to live out of love. Um, and certainly, there's enough of that that we see in movies and read and um, books but for the Christian, true love, honest love, the real love is the love that comes from God. And so that's why we're going to go through this, this eight weeks to unfold that compelling love of God, that it should be God's love that is in us, through us, compelling us. And so today we're going to take a look at his word. Now what's funny for me as a pastor, I'll bump into people, get to know people, and they're usually surprised to find out that I am a pastor. I don't know um, why that's the case. I guess I just don't look or act or talk like um, what people would have in their mind as a pastor. And so they're always so surprised. You're a pastor? And I'll, then they'll ask me, well, where, where's your church? What church is it? And so I'll say it's Cypress Bible Church. And then they get that inquisitive look on their face and they'll ask, so What's a Bible church all about? Uh, and, I, and I do this to them. I, I, I don't miss this. They're like, if you're going to throw me a softball, I'm hitting it. I go, uh, the Bible? That's our distinctive. We value the Bible. And that's why I like to pastor in a Bible church is that it is the level ground that we base our life on. If the scriptures teach it and say it, therefore it must be true and it must be valid for my life. And I want to conform my life around what the scriptures say is true. And so that's where we're going to go today. Hopefully uh, you'll find it compelling. Here's what people don't know about the Bible. This is from a couple different sources. Barna is one of the sources, but... Um, they interviewed both Christians and non-Christians. 63% of people can't name the four Gospels. 58% can't list all ten commandments. 12%, I, this is funny, believe Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. That's just funny. 
50% think Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife rather than two adulterous cities. And 60% think the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. So just to clarify, that's not in the Bible. Basically, that was Benjamin Franklin. Um, and so I love what St. Jerome said. Ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. Um, so there's really a lot of ignorance about the Bible today. And if you encounter people who don't go to church, um, they're, they're, they're not following after Christ, you need to invite them to church. And you need to challenge them and say, have you ever read the Bible for yourself? Have you ever just looked at it? Most people who reject Christianity, reject the Bible, they've never read it. They've never honestly picked it up. Trust me on this one. And what's amazing is when people actually start reading the Bible, it changes them. The Bible has that power. It has always had that power. And we're going to see that today in the text that we're going to take a look at. But most concerning for me is what some people today say about the Bible. And you'll hear them and, you, and listen to the subtlety, okay? I'm going to give you later a defining statement on what the Bible is. But here's what some today, you'll hear them say, the Bible is a word, not the word. A word about God, a story about the relationship between God and humans written by men with some inaccuracies. Notice how that sounds kind of nice, but it really just destroys the reliability, the authenticity of the scriptures themselves. It casts a negative pall. You'll find a lot of people who will say that. Another thing they'll say is, the Bible is a source of ideas in which the different books reflect the times and values in which they were written. But we must develop our own understanding of God from our whole life experience. Oh my, don't you sound enlightened. Now that's the source of ego and arrogance to think that your personal interpretation of a holy document is better than allowing that holy document to speak for itself. And so let's take a look here um, at how David was compelled by his word. I would encourage you, if you want to grow in your love for the Bible, just read Psalm 119. It's the big one. It's really long. Okay, but you can read just eight verses at a time uh, because it alphabetically goes through the alphabet of the Hebrew Bible and gives you eight verses at a time. This one I pulled out, um, and, and, and David says, Show me your love, and save me, Lord, as you have promised. Then I will have an answer for everyone who insults me for trusting your word. I will obey your word forever. I have gained freedom by following your teachings. They bring me happiness. I love and respect them. And I think that really solidifies what we mean by the Bible, the Word, the Holy Scriptures should be compelling to us. David articulates it extremely well here. This is a compelling love for God's Word and how it affects the person compelled by God's Word. You see a person animated by God's love. You see a person who is going to receive God's salvation. You see one who obeys what the Word teaches. You see someone who is happy. 
someone who shows respect to God and ultimately shows respect to other people. So a compelling view of God's Word compels us to love God, to love others, and actually enjoy His blessings and His happiness. So let's take a look at our scripture for today. It comes from Acts chapter 17. It's printed in your workbooks. I hope you all have one of these workbooks. Um, and you'll see on the icebreaker there for your group ministries, um, when you gather in groups, is what is the farthest place you have traveled? Um, and one of the reasons why we put that in there as an icebreaker is to get to Berea, Paul's been traveling through Macedonia, which is northern uh, Greece, and he's been to Philippi, and he had to leave Philippi. They didn't like him there, and he got to hang out in prison, and then he moved on to Thessalonica. They didn't like him there, and they kicked him out of town, and so he went 45 miles inland from uh, Thessalonica, which was on the coast, to Berea, which was a large inland city. And so we find Paul and Silas and his companions there. Uh, this is Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, it's about 55 AD. So hear now the word of God. I'm going to pick up on verse 11, even though your booklet starts um, on verse 10. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see what, Paul, what if, if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. So we see here that when the, the, the Bible, the scriptures, is always connected with the proclamation of God's word as well that they read them for themselves, but Paul is also there publicly proclaiming what the Scriptures teach. So the study of the Word and the proclamation of the Word are always going hand in hand to the people of God. So as we take a look at this Scripture, what do you say we just pray? This is a Berean prayer um, from the Book of Common Prayer. Um, if you'd like to pray it out loud with me, please go right ahead. I'm going to pray it very slowly so we think about it. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us that we may be wise to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. May we embrace and hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Is not that just beautiful? That when we approach the Word of God, we are asking God that we can hear it and mark it up and learn and digest it, to meditate upon it, to contemplate it, to allow it to affect us and change us. And so that's one of the very unique things about the Christian approach to Holy Scriptures that you rarely see in other religions. Usually it's just rote memorization, or they'll, and they'll memorize it just so they can do certain things. Rarely in other religions do you see a desire to approach Holy Scripture with the purpose of it to change and to impact you. 
And that's because we believe that the Word of God has been breathed by God Himself and that He animates us. Now, the first thing in this text is the people of Berea were of noble character. The Greek word there is Eugene's, right? That's Eugene Peterson who wrote the message. And so if your name is Gene or Eugene, your name means one of noble character, an aristocrat. Um, it also means to be open-minded, tolerant, not bigoted, given to unbiased inquiry. And you're a wise person, one who knows the truth and lives by the truth. And the scripture here is telling us 2,000 years later, be like these guys. You want to have a happy life? You really want to know Jesus? You want to enjoy God for the rest of your life and for all eternity? Be like these guys. Make the Bible your highest priority. You will be a spiritual aristocrat if you make it your priority and study it and learn from it. I heard the other day that what an intellectual is is somebody who can hold two divergent thoughts in mind but doesn't necessarily succumb or apprehend the one that he disagrees with, right? So when you approach the Scriptures, you're able to read the Scripture, see what it says, and then you compare that to everything that the world has told you is true, which just for the record, it's a lie, okay? Everything the world's told you is a lie. Everything the Scripture tells you is truth. And so you're able to look at both sets of argumentation hold them, and then evaluate them and arrive at what is true. That is, this, that, that is the definition of an intellectual. So let's all be intellectual, shall we? What is Scripture? It's simply God's holy word. You'll see there in your booklet um, from uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. That word God-breathed is a word that Paul came up with under um, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he was trying to explain what does Scripture really mean, it's, it, and, and God told him. It means that I breathed it, and I breathed it through the men who write it. Um, the 42 inspired authors were prophets, they were priests, they were kings, they were apostles. Now, there's a couple divergencies there. No one really knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. We have some really good guesses at it. Nobody knows who really wrote the book of Job. So there are a couple of question marks about the authorship. However, there's 42 inspired authors over 1,500 years in different cultures, in different countries that the Bible was written. It's absolutely one of the most amazing books. They once did an inquiry um, with a number of publishers and authors and said, if we were going to ask 40 authors from around the world to write a book together, each writing independently and separately on the themes of God and love and sin and world events, how unified would that project be? And the authors and the publishers laughed. They said it would be a mess. There would be so much disagreement. 
so much lack of unity. And when you read the scriptures, like Tim Castile was saying, I thought that was a great video by our missionary Tim at University of Arkansas. It gives, gives you reason to um, have your kids go off and be Razorbacks, um, to have, have him there. But you can come up with more compelling reasons to go to Arkansas. Um, but anyhow, you, you just, the Bible is amazing in how it all comes together so incredibly well. Um, and so that's what Scripture is, the, God's holy word. And it's been written by men, but it was all inspired. The, the Spirit of God came over them, leading them, writing these words. Um, I love how um, one of the confessions says it. It says, It pleased the Lord at sundry times in divers' manners to reveal himself and to declare his will to his people for the preserving and propagating of the truth and the establishment and comfort of the church. Now, that's how they said it in 1646, England. But I love that. In various ways and in various manners, God saw fit to write for us to have his written word so that we can know it, interact with it, engage it. So, what has God given to direct us to, so that we can glorify him, to enjoy him? His word. And what do the scriptures teach? What mankind is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires. So, the Bible teaches us everything that we need to know for faith and everything we need to know about God and what he wants for us, what his will is for our lives. That's the purpose of scripture. And those are big things. And you see here that in, in Acts 17, 12 that we just read, as a result, many of them believed. You see, that's the purpose of the Word of God, is for you to believe. To believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. To believe that God's Word is His very Word, and to know His Word is to know Him. So this is the whole purpose of the Scripture. So let's just take our points right from the text, okay, from the two texts that you have there. So and this, is, this is why it's compelling. It's compelling because Scripture is authoritative. Now here's a right statement of what the Bible is. Um, I believe this Chicago statement was written around 1978, and it has been a, an overarching, influencing statement to evangelical churches throughout the world for the last 45 years. So if you've ever walked into a church like this that takes the Bible truly and honestly, they would be considered evangelical, doesn't matter the non-denomination or the denomination, they would hold to this for the last 45 years. That being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teachings, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, world history, or its origins, than it in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. So we would say that the scriptures are inerrant, meaning there's no errors in them, and they are infallible, that they are true. Now I know a lot of people will say, well, there's some differences. When you look back at all the scriptures and you start comparing them, you might have difference between manuscripts from this area and manuscripts from this area, and they disagree over a preposition, or they, um, or, or, or they might have a slightly different account 
between different historical books on how many people were killed in a battle, right? And, and the, the answer to that is each book is doing a different type of count. One's counting it from the, the Hebrew perspective. The other one's doing it from somebody else's perspective on how many people died in the battle. When you start looking at wherever there's discrepancies in the scriptures, they are of the most minor kind. I mean, you're, you're really trying to, you know, you know, pick dust out of, uh, out, out, off of a clean table. Um, so, uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy says, all scriptures God breathed, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Who is doing the teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training to the individual? God is. His word is. You don't need a mentor. You don't need a pastor. It helps to have a pastor. You don't need somebody else telling you what God wants for your life. Pick it up and read. And the Bible will tell you. Now, have some people in the past come to some really crazy ideas? Yes, there are always going to be crazy people, but we can answer the crazies out there. You can pick up the Bible and you can read it for yourself and God himself will instruct your heart, your soul, and your mind to his truth. Okay? And so that's why we say it's authoritative. We also say, and we see this in this text here, right? They received the message with great eagerness and they examined the scriptures every day to see what, if what Paul said was true. So you see scripture interpreting scripture. The infallible rule of interpretation is Scripture, without question, if you have a question about a passage, you can search other passages to prove it's true. So, like, for example, um, if someone says, well, there's this thing called predestination that God, you know, has a plan for humanity and for life. You go, oh, that can't be true. Well, you can go to Deuteronomy 7 and Colossians 3 and Titus 1, and it says God has chosen you. You can go to John 6, and Jesus says, no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. You go to Ephesians 1, before the foundations of the earth, you were chosen, you were elected. Jeremiah the prophet, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Okay? And you go, oh, maybe this whole predestination thing really is in the Bible. Right? Because you got Scripture interpreting Scripture. You can compare it New Testament to Old Testament. You can see what the prophet says. You can see what the historical book says. You can see what the apostles are writing. Oh, it all lines up. This must be true. Scripture interprets Scripture. That's one of the most beautiful things about this. And compare that to any other document. No other document in human history has that quite that ability. Three, Scripture is divine and it's inspired. I love Frankie Schaefer here. The Bible is out mistake because is without mistake because it's God-inspired word and cannot lie because God cannot contradict Himself. So, so those first statements that I read, you know, it's a word and there's some inaccuracies. Okay, to say that there's inaccuracies in God's word, you just called God a liar. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be standing there on Judgment Day and Him saying. Remember on uh, May 17, 1986, you said that my word was inaccurate and that made me out to a liar. Do you want to stand by that statement now? I, I, I don't want to be in that position, do you? I don't want to call God a liar. You know, it's one thing to call another human being a liar. 
but to call God a liar, you're on some really thin ice. So let's be careful. And 1 Thessalonians 2 says, you receive the word of God, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, which performs its work in you who believe. We see the same thing happening there in Acts 17. The Bereans are coming to it, really believing that this is God's divine and inspired word. It, it holds something over us. Fourth, Scripture is revelatory. It reveals Jesus, the Son of God, and His good news of salvation. I love Jesus here um, when He's talking with the um, Pharisees. He says, you pour over the Scriptures, for you imagine that you will find eternal life in them. And all the time, they give their testimony to me. So when you read the Scriptures, it's doing one thing. It's revealing the person of Jesus and his good news and his gospel. That is what's so compelling about all of Scripture, for it points to him. Who is the God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve? Who is the one, Genesis 3, who's going to come and crush the serpent's head? It is he, the Lord Jesus. Who is it in the burning bush in Exodus 3, giving commands to Moses? Jesus said, I am. It is Jesus. All the scriptures, he says, point to him. And so when we come to the scriptures, they are revealing to us the scriptures. One fun thing that um, I, I, some people have put forward several years ago, um, Tim Keller wrote a book on it, is when you read the Psalms, read it through the lens that they're pointing to Jesus, that he's talking about Jesus. Totally changes the way you read the Psalms. Fifth, the clarity of Scripture, or the big word, perspicuity. Okay, I just love to say that word, perspicuity. What does it mean? It means it's understandable to all people, right? It said in Acts 17, many of them believe, not just the Jews, but also the Greek women, right? Prominent Greek women. I don't know what made them prominent, but they held some sway there in Berea and the men. So what it's saying is Scripture is good for all people in all places at all time, and if you have a 75 IQ, you get it. If you have 175 IQ, you get it because the Scripture is clear. There's a clarity to it. However, at the same time, and Tim did a good job explaining this as well, you can't understand all of it all at once, and it's going to take some effort. I remember when I was 14, and I grew up going to church, to a Presbyterian, to a Methodist church, and I said, you know what? I, I took out our RSV Bible, okay? And, and I was going to read through it. I got to somewhere in like Genesis 20-something, and I was like, this is crazy. I don't know what Abraham's doing and Isaac, and why can't Isaac get a girlfriend? He's 40 years old. He has to have his dad's secretary go get him a girlfriend. I don't get this. I want a girlfriend too. I'm 14. And I gave it up. Then a few years later, when I was 17, I came to Christ and learned, oh, Jesus wants to have a relationship with me. He wants to know me personally. And then I, I gave my life to Christ, and I started reading the Bible, and meaning just it, it just, it just all came so clear to me because I had Christ in my heart. And you see, if you read the Bible and you're, you're 
it's not making sense to you, maybe you don't have Jesus in your heart. Maybe you haven't invited him into your life. Maybe you have invited him into your life, but you're not getting out anything out of reading the scriptures. That's why you pray that prayer that I started with. You ask the Lord Jesus to reveal himself to you. That's when you sit down to read the Bible, just pray, Jesus, this is you. This is your holy word. Reveal yourself to me in what I am to read. Changes everything, folks. Changes everything. Is it reliable? You bet it is. I don't want to hit on this too hard because we're running out of time. When you read the Dead Sea Scrolls 200 B.C., written in Hebrew, you compare them to the Septuagint, which means the 70, written by Greek Jewish scholars in Egypt, one being written in Palestine, one being written in Egypt. You know what? When you compare them right to each other, you know what you get? An exact match on all 39 books. Exact. And so when you pick up your Old Testament today, and you read it, what you're reading is exactly the way it was written in 200 B.C. No mistakes. No errors. That's unbelievable. And some people want to deny that it's the very Word of God, but yet they'll accept that Homer's Iliad, there's only nine manuscripts from 900 um, AD, from 1000 A.D. It was written maybe 800, 900 B.C. Some people think it, it wasn't even written it was an oral form for several hundred years. But nobody would deny that Homer was the author or writer of the Iliad. But people will then deny that of the scriptures being written by God. And there's 5,500 New Testament manuscripts, meaning that these are written manuscripts that we have prior to the, um, the, the printing press. It is reliable. So why is it compelling? As Tori says, it's the very word of God. It is his voice. He speaks to you, and it is Jesus who is the scriptures. He is the logos. What is the compelling reason to read the Bible and to know the Bible? It is to know Jesus. It addresses every topic under the sun. And for your benefit today... We have a book available to you at the welcome desk. I would encourage you to pick it up. And also, um, there is a booklet that Jonathan Chang has put together on Bible study methods. This is the free option. The book is 10 bucks, and that's even at a discount. But what Jonathan has put together here, I told him when he came up to pray for me, I said, you know what, Jonathan? I'm just going to chuck my sermon and just read through your Bible methods booklet you, you just came up with. Every one of you needs to go and pick this up. This is gold. This is really one of the most wonderful booklets on how, how to study the Bible I've ever seen, and our very own Jonathan Chang came up with it himself, did all the work on it. So here's your challenge. This is um, on page number eight of your booklet. What we want you to do this week, this is very important, is... We want you to commit to memorize and read scriptures this week. <clears throat> so, um, and you'll see that we've got eight weeks of challenge, and the worship team's going to come up. But here for week two, here's the challenge. Memorize Romans 6.23. Okay? Not that hard. So, write it out. Put it, put it on your daily calendar. 
try and just memorize Romans 6.23. And then your other challenge is every day read the whole book of Ephesians. It's six chapters. You can read it in 10 minutes. Okay, maybe 12 for some of you. But, but really, and, and here's the thing, if for the next six days you read all six chapters of Ephesians for the next six days, your, your, your mind starts thinking like Ephesians. What a value that is, right? That as you go through your daily life, you're thinking like the book of Ephesians. So just pick it up every day. I'm going to try it. I'm really terrible at challenges like this, but I think we can do it. So let's stand and let's sing to God's glory.